Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the Pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Neil Cameron is a former editor and publisher of the now-defunct Campbell River Courier Islander newspaper. He's also a past editor of Island Fisherman magazine and BC Outdoors. To say he's an avid fly fisher would be an understatement of epic proportions. (laughs) He's a recipient of the Totem Fly Fisher's Roderick Haig Brown Conservation Award, and he joins us today from the Garden of Egan, a former home of the late Van and Maxine Egan, just a few properties up the river from above tide, so he's very neighborly as well. He's so close by that he's also currently the official waterer of the Haig Brown Garden. (laughs) Neil, welcome to Taking Measure. Well, thank you, Dan. You've selected the month of March, and you've got a reading for us. Yes. And just a prelude to it, I picked it a long time ago, and it has some very up-to-date meanings. He wrote this in 1950, and I'll just stop before I do the last paragraph of it, because on this Truth and Reconciliation Day, you got to hear this. And I couldn't remember reading it. So here it goes. And it also has to do with systemic racism. I do not wish to claim perfection for Canada. My daughter said there is no segregation in Canada. There is not. In large ways, Canada shows greater tolerance towards minorities than any country I know. Yet Canadians are the most intolerant people I know. Almost any Canadian has a pet intolerance probably several, that he will expound upon at a moment's notice. I have heard Canadians hating Catholics, Jews, Americans, Irish, English, Scottish, Ukrainians, Poles, Japanese, Chinese, French Canadians, English Canadians, Germans, Mennonites, Dukabors. The list, for all I know, may cover every nation, race, religion, and activity on the face of the earth. It is so comprehensive, in fact, that one might be tempted to argue safety in it. But it's not a safe thing. Intolerance is a habit, and it can be used. In parts of Canada, intolerance is already dangerous. Vicious exchanges between Ontario's Protestants and Quebec Catholics lessen the nation. Prairie hatred of Ukrainians is often vicious and dangerous. Pacific Coast hatred of the Japanese 
founded on economic jealousy, used the war to strip them of homes and property and liberty. There is no comparable shame in Canadian history. Now, here's the paragraph for today. And remember, we didn't know we were taping it on this day. This is the one. I am not happy about Canada's treatment of Canadian Indians. It was benevolently conceived, paternalistic, in some degree protective, but it is hopelessly outdated. It is narrow, based on ignorance and misconception, and at this stage of the 20th century, it is oppressive. I think Canadians know this, and that Canadian Indians will, in time, be given a new place in the country. But I think the change is long overdue, and that every delay is shameful to us. 1950. That's a very powerful way to essentially begin Measure of the Year. This is the month of March, but as you know, the book starts in the month of March, and there's a lot of scene setting, you might say, that goes on. It's in the month of March that he gives us that idea of the changing of the seasons and makes us more aware of that. He gets into proper names, he calls it, but these are all the different names we have for different things. And he pretty much walks us through the 20 acres or so of Above Tide and gives us sort of a foundation as to this is where we are and this will be the base that we work from moving forward through the seasons, through our measure of the year. Why did you want to start in March? Well, basically, uh, Valerie and uh, Mary and Alan had first choice of the month, so I had to take March. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it was why start measure of the year in March. And I read it again, and like you said, he set it up so perfectly. And being the official waterer of the garden during this last heat wave, and I was reading this book, and now it was almost like a map. There's where Alan's little fort was. There's where he would land his canoe in that little area that they put the weirs up. Well, that's what I swam in while I was watering the garden because it was so darn hot. So he set that up. And then all of a sudden, I think this book comes after A River Never Sleeps, Return to the River, Timber, Starbuck Valley Winter, On the Highest Hill, The Western Angler, Saltwater Summer, and one of my favorites, Panther. All those books came out before this, and now all of a sudden we have this collection of excellent essays. I think he came out in this as as an essayist, and he wanted, I think, to lay the record straight. And he started out beautifully setting it up, but then he used some pretty harsh words and some pretty harsh descriptions for someone in 1950. I'm sure there were others who did that, but maybe not so much in the printed word and And it probably took a lot of people by surprise, but I just thought it was wonderful. It's amazing how Haig Brown always seems to discuss a topic from at least two opposing different sides. He's always thinking about the other viewpoint, the the on-the-other-hand approach. And so that passage you just read us comes right after he speaks so eloquently about Canada and what a wonderful country it is. And it's almost as though we have to hear some of the good stuff and then we have to be settled back into reality. And there's a lot of things here that we could do better. And at the same time, though, it doesn't come off as 
preaching. And I think from a publisher's point of view, you'd say, my goodness, Rod, don't do that here and don't do it at the start because you run the risk of turning people off before they've even got in to measure of the year. Mm -hmm. And yet there's something about the way he lays out his argument that he doesn't sound like he's picked a hill to preach from, but he's got some things on his mind that he'd like you to know. And you kind of take him at his word. You're inclined to, I think, as the reader. And he's pointing out that, yes, there is a lot of intolerance. And yes, we do carry shame. And so it's quite interesting, of course, that all this comes up where we just happen to be having this conversation on Canada's first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. A timely selection there. Part of the month of March deals with proper names and some of the great names that the kids give to different parts of Above Tide. But it takes me back to, I think I asked all the kids this question, or most of them anyway, why is it then that that he refers to the river as the Elk? <laughs> and that he, I think he refers to the community as Elkford. We don't have Campbell River as a community or the name for the river. Any theories as to why? I've thought about it, and I know that there are creeks and uh, other places that he fishes that he doesn't call them by their real name. I kind of think, from what I understood, it was that the Chamber of Commerce wasn't really fond of Roderick Egg Brown. Neither were the forest industries or the hydro industries. And I kind of think there's two things. One, he wanted to protect the river from anglers coming and fishing his river. So if they were reading about it and perhaps didn't know it, but it wouldn't take too much back then even to figure out where it was. But maybe it was also a thing where he said, well, you know what? I don't want you to benefit with publicity off of my work. So I'm going to call it Elkhorn and not Campbell River. And I don't know if he was that kind of a man, but I know, I know he called progress that bitch progress. I know what they did to his river, know what they did to the environment. And he fought them and he, like, he wasn't liked by those people. He was adored by so many others. So I don't know if that was it, Dan. I kind of like to think it was more, I don't want any of those people coming in and fishing my steelhead, but I don't know. It's strange. Now, let's do a bit of backgrounding here. Neil, when did you first come to Campbell River? Oh, cheapers. It was 79 or 80. I can't remember. And you would have come here to, obviously, to work at the newspaper. Yep. I uh, had bought a house in Yorkton, Saskatchewan on a Tuesday, and Thompson Newspapers sent me out here Thursday. <laughs> and said, and we have union negotiations on Friday. We'd like you there. <laughs> Welcome aboard. <laughs> yeah. Because of Yorkton, I think of you as a prairie boy. Is that really safe to say? Uh, no, not really. I only spent six years there. But while there, I learned to play the bagpipes. I learned to make pierogies from scratch. And I learned to speak, read and write Ukrainian up to grade four level. But uh, I was born and raised in eastern Ontario on the St. Lawrence. And that's where I got my love of fishing. Bass out of Nash Creek and pike out of Casman's Creek. And then, of course, the St. Lawrence River the perch and the perch rolls. But really, I, I think I'm a, I'm more of a West Coast person right now as far as what I do and what I love to do. 
So you come to Campbell River, late 70s, and you're working at the the newspaper. At that point in time, you're not yet a student of Haig Brown, are you? No, it didn't take me long, though. We're going to get there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's wind the clock back. And Neil Cameron is a young lad. He's moved to Campbell River. How does he find out about Haig Brown? How does he come to Haig Brown? One of the first things that was just shocked me was that you can actually fish the rivers year round here and the lakes and the ocean. I mean, remember, I come from a, I came from, grew up in a place where there was an opening day and a closing day. And I wanted to fly fish. And when I went in to get what I need, and then of course there was the primer of fly fishing by Haig Brown. And then of course, well, there's more books by him. And in our position as journalists, then, you know, you want to learn as much as you can about a, about an area, about a city, and what a better place to learn than uh, through the books of Roderick Hig Brown. So you started reading Rod once you got here to Campbell River? Yes. Okay. And of course, coming to Campbell River brings you into contact with someone who would be a longtime dear friend, and that was Van Egan. Yes. As well as Maxine. And Maxine. His lovely wife. Yeah. Take us back there. How did you come across Van Egan? Well, remember that Thursday crossword we used to put in the paper? <laughs> and then we'd say, we'll put the answer in the Tuesday one? Well, well, we sometimes forgot to put the answer in. So I got this phone call from this lovely lady who said, me and my friends, so there's 12 of us, that we have money on this crossword who can finish it. We need the actual answer. So if I come down there, could I get it from you? And I said, no, I'll tell you what, I'll bring it out. and. I came down this driveway, and there's Maxine. And also at this time, too, I had read and knew of Van's book, Taiyi, the story of the Taiyi Club of British Columbia. And then when I got to the door, I said, there you go. And she said, oh, would you like to come in and meet Van? And I said, pardon me? <laughs> so I said, Van, Van Egan? And she said, yes. He got up, and he came in and sit down. You're the new editor. Let me pour you a drink. And that's where it started. So you didn't even know that you were at the Garden of Egan at that point. Was the sign out in those days? Did it say Garden of Egan? You know, I can't remember. I can't remember. I imagine it might have been, but I don't know. So tell us the story of Van Egan as you knew him. Van was one of those people, as I understand it, who came to Campbell River. Campbell River was almost a pilgrimage for him because he wanted to meet Haig Brown. Exactly. And he was fishing the sandy pool, which is just down from the logging bridge. And he had noticed somebody watching him from the bridge. But Van fished a while for a bit. And then all of a sudden, the fellow came down and reached up in a tree and pulled the fly out of the tree and went up to Van and said, you'll do better if you use this. So Van had been fishing for about 10 minutes without a fly. <laughs> And I imagine then that I think he was invited back to the house for either dinner or a, or a drink or to meet Anne. And then he found this property and it's two doors down from Haig Browns and he decided to buy it. And him and Maxine came here and then him and him and Rod were very, very good friends and exchanged a lot of notes. And I feel that when Van would talk about Rod, I never got to meet Rod. He died in 1976. But through Van, I think I have a really good appreciation for the type of person that Rod was. 
Now, Van, as I remember him, was soft-spoken, truly gentleman, and he had this quiet authority about him. And of course, he could sit there and spin yarns about Roderick and their times on the on the river. It must have been a wonderful time for you to experience that through Van. Dan, there's one very special spot that Rod taught Van for fishing cutthroats on the condition that Van tells nobody and he kept the secret and Van had showed me that spot. And to this day, that spot is just as magical and just as great as it ever was. So that's sort of an inheritance from Rod from to Van and then to me was was fabulous. Van was a teacher by trade, was he not? He was. He was born in Wisconsin, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And ironically, he hated cheese. Couldn't stand the smell of it. So Wisconsin is the wrong place to be. Wisconsin was the wrong place to be. But I remember when he used to come into the the newspaper office. Remember everybody, they'd come in and then the girls would say, yes, how can we help you? Well, that only took Van about two times before when he came in, he walked straight into my office. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) No rest. Stop the chat to you and then come in and usually give me a letter to the editor about whatever was on his mind. So full disclosure here, I worked with Neil Cameron for more than 15 years at the Courier Islander newspaper. And it was there that I learned about Haig Brown and the multifaceted West Coast fishing culture. It was obvious, Neil, that you were obsessed with fishing. And as a reporter, I quickly learned that the unofficial rule about our approach to news at the Courier Islander was, if it's got fins, it's got front. (laughs) And so my boss is a fishing fanatic. I better write stories about fishing. And that stuck. And we covered commercial fishing, sport fishing, enhancement, aquaculture. We had columnists writing about fishing, as well as reprinting some of Haig Brown's material. Neil was writing a column. Rob Bell Irving was writing a column. Jeremy Maynard was writing a column. Of course, there were the likes of Van Egan and others who were submitting letters to the editors. And there was the newspaper editorial department was this big open room with our desks pushed together in the middle and a straight line of sight pretty much from Neil's office to the front door. And this is where I met Van Egan, Dick Murphy, Mike Gage, Rick Frey, Jim Van Tyne, Don McIver, <laughs> Steve Ordano, this, this mix of commercial, sport, enhancement, and they all seem to wander in and just sit down in Neil's office and talk fishing. And I never had any idea that you could spend so much time talking about fishing. But that was kind of the culture. And clearly, you saw value in fostering that community. It was kind of like your door was always open and people would come in whether they were happy with you or if they were not. But that conversation around fishing on the Campbell and in Campbell River was almost never-ending. It was so familiar. People knew where to go and where they'd have a good conversation. That obviously wasn't the case right from the very beginning, but were you aware of that as that was evolving that way? The office and that conversation pit that this all became. Well, I think really you can see how Haig Brown affected 
me as a young editor. I had a quote from a guy like Roderick K. Brown, who the business community didn't like very much. <laughs> and I had a quote from his book right on our editorial page. And it ran there for 20 years, I think, 15 or 20 years. I remember it well. Yeah. And then we had the Our Planet page where we had Nikki Polson writing about recycling, Ray Grigg writing his stuff, and then the excerpts from Haig Brown. And it was called the Our Planet page, and it was probably the, one of the most popular parts of the paper. And at that time, too, people paid more attention to the fishery stuff that's going on. I don't think you could get away with that now in this era. Because basically there's a lot of new people come that don't fish. I suppose. But still a major part of the local economy. Do you feel that 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 has kind of tailed off? It's not quite so top of mind, a big part of the conversation that it once was. Oh, I still think it is. But of the people who at that time were partaking in it, I don't think you really see any of the, the new people that come here that can really embrace it as much as the rest of us. I mean, like... You talk about a guy like Mike Gage, I mean, just so much knowledge and just the understanding of what's going on, not so much just going out there and catching a salmon, but understanding what's going on. And that's one of the reasons why I also took this excerpt from Roger K. Brown, because he was telling us in 1950, this is what we are now. This is how we're treating the First Nations now. We've got to change that. And now it's basically all coming around. Things are happening, progressing, and like he said, not as fast as we wanted. But he did the same thing with fisheries management and natural management of the thing. If we would have listened to Haig Brown, to what he said about fisheries and hunting and care of the land, we wouldn't be in where we are right now. We've got Campbell River here. If you took that hatchery out, we would have no salmon left in the Quinsome or the Campbell River. Very few. I think the document I saw said within seven years, they'd be gone. And that's a shame, but we never listened to them. In the early days at the newspaper, obviously we had not evolved that fishing culture in terms of the reportage, shall we say, at the Courier Islander. But I get the impression you saw that pretty much from the start. Of course, it wouldn't hurt to have Van Egan looking over your shoulder that this was a direction to go. It was certainly the direction to go. And you remember, Dan, at one time when we had the Tuesday, Thursday paper and we had the Our Planet page, and we had a paid subscriber basis of 12,000 people. <laughs> 12,000 people. I don't even think there were that many houses in Campbell River or that, or that many residents or, or whatever, but it certainly paid off. We'd go to customers, sell advertising and stuff like that, and we could talk. Cause they all fished. Everybody fished. Everybody hunted. And they love reading it. So if they're reading it, they're going to advertise in it. True enough. And when the big environmental issues came up, you had, well, Dick Murphy factors into so many different facets of this conversation. He was, well, he was a local physician. He was accredited by some almost single-handedly saving the Taiyi Club when it came on rough times. And of course, part of the environmental committee that would be in your office, either in the form of Dick Murphy or Don McIver mm -hmm. or Stan Goodrich. And if there was something happening, they were coming to you to talk about it. And Leona Adams, that was good. They had someone they could talk to because they weren't getting things done. And then I would sick my pit bull, Dan McLennan, on the story. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, people listened. And that was great. It was to have them come in and say, we're having a problem with this. We can't get this done. What can you do? Huh? Hey, Dan, could you come in here for a minute? <laughs> 
I don't know what kind of story list you got today, but this is one I'd like you to get at. That's how I met a lot of people, yes. So when we look, it's been more than 70 years since Rod Haig Brown wrote Measure of the Year. It's more than 45 years after he died. And yet, he still has this mark, this touch on the community. Take me on an exercise here. When you think about Campbell River, what are the things that come to mind that are the way they are because Haig Brown raised a family here on the banks of the Campbell? Oh, jeepers, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Number one, what they were planning to do with the BC Hydro at the start before Rod heard about it, they were going to shut off the flow completely while the Chinooks were in there. Well, he took care of that. And people who wanted to do things that were going to hurt the land and the ocean knew that there was somebody waiting there to take them to task for it. But there was just not enough people in power that listened to him and followed through with his suggestions. Now, Campbell River kind of strikes me as, particularly in these earlier days we've been reminiscing about, as having sort of attained a critical mass of interest of like-minded people. And it's almost as though the writings and the words of Haig Brown were kind of the glue that sort of held this together. To this day, you have all sorts of people who want to come and fly fish in the Campbell River. Uh, if you're coming from out of town and you want to fly fish here, chances are you've heard of Haig Brown and you're going to stop and have a look at the house. That's just kind of the way it is. Is that critical mass theory? Does that work for you? And if so, what's the trick to keeping it going? Oh, my Dan, uh, one of the saddest things when people come to, to fish the Campbell and they've read about catching steelhead and cutthroat, they're all gone. The last count I heard were there seven steelhead up in the canyon. They don't really count them. They don't really care about them. They have no program for them. We used to have a program that tried to, to do it there. But I feel sorry for the people that come that, number one, if the river isn't down at dead summer low, you can't fish that river. Like right now, you can get in, I mean, with fly fishing, I shouldn't say that. If you've got gear, you can fish with rubber boots, but it is not a pleasant river to wade at the current levels they have. His aura, what it was like to be an outdoors man, what it was like to be uh, a father, what it was like to be a farmer of some kind, that was the romanticism of his existence. But he had a hard time. It wasn't like, you know, everybody gave him all this money and whatever. He had to work at it. If you keep the positive parts of what he intended, if we could go back to bringing back our streams and our creeks, because they're all in peril with the way Campbell River has grown. There's plans now in some places that I won't say here that they're planning to put in a subdivision that the first plan is we've got to reroute the water. And I understand is people got to have homes and people got to have that, but I, I think there would be a better way to develop than what we have so far. And we've improved, but I think really, really take a unique approach to it for any more development we got going on in Campbell River and, and make sure that the fish are first. It's quite interesting when you think that the Campbell itself as a river is maybe what? 
a few kilometers long. Yeah. From the falls down. And yet it has been one of the most studied, written about, enhanced rivers that I can think of. In large part, I think, because Rod was writing about it to begin with and uh, writing about those things that he enjoyed and also those things that worried him. Yeah, Rod writing about it. And the Thai Club of British Columbia also added to that mystique. I mean, you have fishermen out there in little rowboats and you're getting a club that's catching 300, 350 Thais a year in a two-month stretch. That's why we had all the famous people coming here at one time. But that's again, goes back to the really sad part of it is that when they put the powerhouse in, and, and I can't find anywhere in Rod's writing where he, he said there were some positive things or we could wouldn't have to worry about really bad summer lows. But the one thing I think he just didn't think of, and no one did, was that because of the average flow of that Campbell River, they blew every damn piece of gravel out of that river. And in 1994, at the pump house, there was a 60-yard stretch, and that was the only place that had spawning gravel that could handle Chinooks and any other species, and they all sort of superimposed on it. So that came up in 1994, but even before that, they had the mine leachate that basically poisoned all the fish. All the original Chinook, all the original steelhead. And so we didn't, as a society, do it. There were people that made bad decisions and with the dam and the way it was, with the mine the way it was. And those bad decisions are going to keep happening. I wish I could be more positive, but that's how it goes. The other part that, and I know he fought that dam and he was not pleased when it went ahead, but he also had a remarkably practical streak to him. And I remember hearing the story from Art Price, who had been the hydro manager in the area and who had a little office down the end of the parking lot that's no longer there, that looked out over the river just a little ways below the generating station, and how he could watch Haig Brown snorkeling in the river, and Haig Brown could send him signals like, bring the flow down a little bit, and and, <laughs> and he could actually just phone up the guys and get them to close the gates a little bit more. So he actually could study the river better with some help from Art Price and Hydro. And I remember thinking that was must have been a remarkable friendship, but also thinking, what an incredibly rare opportunity to be afforded that, that capability, and to use it so constructively to study the fish in the river. Exactly. Well, you and I have snorkeled that canyon together. How beautiful was that? That was an amazing journey. <laughs> Especially the helicopter. <laughs> yes, indeed. The late, great Ed Wilcox lowered us down into an area that I wasn't sure a helicopter would fit into. <laughs> right below the falls. And dropped us on a dime. That was an amazing opportunity. And that was in the days, while well, we were doing that, because BC Hydro actually had their biologist who was going to come out and swim and climb. It's kind of a narrow little one pool to the next below the falls. But that in itself was a sign that things have maybe changed at, at Hydro, even in those days, was that you had somebody who was going to that extent from BC Hydro itself. Yeah, well, I wish Art Price would have lived longer and managed longer, and I think things would have been different. 
A lot has been learned from this river, and I think maybe the early scrutiny and study that Haig Brown put in really kind of set the stage for that. I don't know that a lot of people considered in the first place that a dam would eventually starve the lower river of its spawning gravel. It makes perfect sense that 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 would wash out. And I remember the term was recruitment. Uh, The river would not recruit more gravel Mm -hmm. from up above because there was a dam there. And once that realization set in and people started paying more attention to it, then we saw these really considerable, expensive, unique efforts to put gravel back into the river through special ramps. And because a lot of this is inaccessible territory, too, when you're trying to add gravel to that upper canyon, Mm -hmm. using helicopters to lower big baskets of of, and, and we're not talking little pea gravel here. We're talking some big rock that has been added over the years. That culture continues, but somewhere along the way, the steelhead seemed to get left out. Yes. The the Campbell had a, a decent run of winter steelhead, larger fish. The summer run was a smaller fish and a smaller run. But even with the recruitment of the gravel, I think we could have done it better. I mean, if you look at the Campbell now and you look at where where the gravel moves, what we really needed was the gravel, but we also needed some, some structure, some structure that would prevent all that gravel from, okay, so you put it in, it washes out. How many times did that happen? Two or three times? We spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and there goes all the gravel. They're getting it right now. I think Martin Buchanan from the Campbell River Sam Foundation and and the recent one that they've put in at the top of the upper island, that's a, that's a nice piece of gravel. And I think it has, they've done it so that it's sort of dug in so that it will resist the flooding. But before what we did, we just sort of dumped it in and never really thought too much what those big, big storms can do. So I think that's an ongoing process you're going to have to do with the Campbell if you're ever going to do that. And unfortunately, uh, the only other thing we can do is is an enhancement program for steelhead. We've tried them. One was successful. One wasn't quite successful. But at the time while we were doing it, they had no no gravel to spawn in. And I'm just wondering um, if we could get a, a steelhead hatchery program working on the Campbell or if, or if we want. I don't know. I just think that's the only thing that's going to happen. But like I said... Most of the time, you can't fly fish to Campbell, and you can't wade out into it in some of the spots. And some of the great runs, the line fence pool was filled with gravel and doesn't hold fish anymore. And then you've got the 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 main island pool at the end of it, and they put the gravel in, and, it's, and now it's just a big chute. Uh, it doesn't hold there, but it's all good intentioned, and, you know, maybe it'll all wash out. But we're at a point now where if we're going to – do something with the Campbell, we have to have a, some kind of enhancement program and a structure to, to allow them to spawn and come back naturally and hopefully someday just end the, the hatchery program. Because there's only seven fish now, that ain't going to last. I remember a time back in, I think it was the winter of 96, when it just rained and rained and rained, and it was one southeaster after another. And this is right after and a lot of work had gone into building a, was it the second island spawning channel? Mm-hmm. And hydro could no longer keep all the water that they were saving for power generation. And they couldn't spill it fast enough either. And they pretty much opened the floodgates wide and washed out 
that brand new spawning channel. And maybe on other rivers, that might have happened as a matter of course, but it sure made an awful lot of people in Campbell River very unhappy, very strident. Of course, they found their way into your office. (laughs) But it was one of those examples of these people who were paying more attention to the river than they might have otherwise. Uh, And in hindsight, there were many, Mike Gage included, who would say that it sounds strange, but hydro washing that spawning channel out might have been one of the best things that ever happened to the Campbell because, boy, did it rile a lot of people up. And it ultimately, it led to this concept of you need to manage your flows on a river. You have the ability to manage flows. You can cause a, a spring freshet, even though that doesn't happen with a dam in place. You can manage the river so that it provides optimum conditions for various fish at different times of the year, and you can still generate your power. And it's almost as though that what was done on this river and the work that went into those initial flow management agreements certainly benefited the river. And I think, once again, set Campbell River apart as a place where this sort of thing happened. I think the flow management concept spread from here to other rivers. Well, if BC Hydro is doing it here, they should be doing it on our river. And so it was, once again, a bit of an example of how this tiny little river could have huge impact coastwide. And once again, because this critical mass had been developed, maybe in large part on the writings and the appreciators of Rod Haig Brown. Boy, that was long-winded. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, I don't know if, if, it, if we look at it and see if Roger Craig Brown never came here, never fished here, never settled here, never wrote his books. I don't think we'd have the great people that, you know, preceded me and that surrounded us. Uh, like you mentioned, all those people who put their time and effort in, I think, because they were inspired by Haig Brown. And they knew that Haig Brown was not just a fisherman, not just a, a magistrate, but a visionary. And what he said was true, and, and they understood it, how to work your small streams, how to take care of your river, how to do power generation properly, how to log properly. None of those people would have, I don't think, had that central focus. He was like a magnet that created that, I'd still say it, an environmental movement that uh, would have been hard to come by in a town that cut trees and mined. Are there enough of those torchbearers? Still carrying the, the torch for the river for Haig Brown, from Haig Brown, you might say. No, I think we we lose them every year. It's very, very troubling. Campbell River's grown so much, and when I talk to people who have moved here recently or whatever, and I say something about Haig Brown, they don't even know who he is. And then I say something about the Campbell River. Do you ever done the Campbell River Trail? Where's that? And these are people who have been here for two or three years already, and that's what you're getting. And in that time when you were talking about when they were all around the gravel and that, you could ask anybody, excuse me, can you show me where the Campbell River is? They all knew where they were. And there are just people, they're a different type. They don't fish. They usually come from a larger center. They jog, they bike, and they enjoy this beautiful city and good on them. But... Uh, I don't think they're the kind that you're going to get out to a steelhead society meeting or 
or whatever, of which, of course, that group is gone. That's how it is. So you have spent a large part of your adult life with the knowledge of Haig Brown, in many cases, writing and writing about fishing or about Haig Brown or about people connected to Haig Brown or who followed Haig Brown. And yet, like myself, you never met the man, did not get that opportunity. If you had that opportunity, is a question from out in left field. If you had that opportunity and you could ask him one question, what would it be? It would probably be, where is that other cutthroat spot that you have that you wouldn't tell Van about? <laughs> I thought you were going to do that. <laughs> I, to be honest with you, if I ever met him, I don't think I could speak. I mean, I'm just he's uh, filled my thoughts on outdoors life and, and everything. And uh, yeah, it would be a wonderful thing. I'll tell you what, there wouldn't be just one question. Yeah, it'd be hard to stop. <laughs> You know, it's been a, a great pleasure to talk to you again, Neil. And I'm wondering, is there anything we've kind of left out here that you'd like to touch on? Um, no, I think uh, we've covered a whole lot of stuff. And that's that's what we do. You think of what we've done over the years, Dan. <laughs> you know, you and the, the writers we had for the newspaper, you know, they that was all part of, you know, sort of the, the Hague Brown group. But... You, you had to be very careful, um, and you were, and uh, you helped immensely because they trusted you. When I criticized people, I tended to not be, let's say, impartial. And I have people like Stephen Watson, like uh, Ian Roberts, like people who didn't like me very much when I wrote my stuff, but then you'd go and do the stories, and they still respected you, and they and you did both sides, uh, which was cool. They probably hated you a bit, but at the same time, they always said, that's fair. You were fair, and that's great. We've had this whole conversation about the lasting impacts of Haig Brown, and certainly I was amazed when I came to the Courier Islander to see how many different people wanted to write about things that Haig Brown wrote about. It was, there was, like I mentioned, the columnists and the letters to the editor, there was kind of a stable of people <laughs> who wrote things related to the Campbell and to Haig Brown. And to be sitting here now in the study at Rod's desk and looking out at the river, which is definitely a place of honor, you think of Haig Brown House now as a historical protected space and its role in fostering writers, and not just writers about fishing and wildlife, but writers of all sorts. It's a wonderful full circle kind of thing. I don't know that I'm describing that very well, but it's it's good to know, whether we are losing torchbearers or not, that there is an effort underway here to foster writers. Yes, I think that's a, it's a great use of the house with the writers in residence. And keeping the property as a heritage site, and it's always going to be there. Who knows, maybe there'll be a resurgence with with people who revisit Haig Brown or visit him for the first time. You know, Van Egan told me once, he said, the person I envy the most is a person who has never read a Haig Brown book. And I asked why. And he said, because they get to read it anew. Because they get to read it. Me? I'm going to be reading it again as much as I like it. But, and he gave me a couple books of Hague Brown. 
it was it's just a, a wonderful wonderful thing and thanks in part to you neil uh now people can read the month of march in taking measure and then maybe listen to the two of us ramble on uh indefinitely to maybe add put a little more meat on the bones yeah exactly neil it's been a pleasure i thank you so much thanks for taking part in taking measure all right, Dan, thank you. And we still have a three-quarter bottle of scotch to, to take on some of these days. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan. 